Last week, we were looking at the words and works of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what he said they do? They remove the excuse from the world. He uses the word for a cloak, like decloaking, taking away this cover-up for sin. Because Jesus came and he lived a perfect supernatural life, the only explanation is that he is God. And how did the world respond to that? They hated him. And what did that show? It showed they hated God. It showed they hated his father. The response to Jesus demonstrated what they felt about his father. But you remember where we are. We're in John chapter 15. This is the farewell discourse. This is Jesus' final message to the disciples. And he has told them, I am going away. So I want you to think about what it would be like to be in the disciples' shoes in this moment. Jesus has just finished explaining what his life has done. It has revealed the guilt of the world, but he's going away. So how is the world going to be convicted of their sin now? How is the world going to recognize that Jesus has come in the flesh if he's no longer walking around in the flesh? Well, what Jesus does next is he explains how his work is going to continue after his departure. It's going to continue on through the work of the Holy Spirit, whom he's going to send, and through the work of the disciples who were his witnesses from the beginning. And what, what's going to happen as a result is the world is going to recognize it's guilty. The people in the world will realize they stand condemned before God. This, this is, when you're sharing the gospel, this is people's least favorite part of the gospel, right? Nobody likes to hear that they stand condemned. Nobody wants to believe that they're a sinner. But this is why it's so important. If they don't know that they stand condemned, they won't realize they need a savior. You don't accept the good news until you understand the bad news. And this is why this work is so important. It's dirty work. It's dirty work revealing to the world that there was one perfect man who lived a perfect life and died in our place. And we need that. Why? Because we're not perfect. His light reveals the darkness in our hearts, reveals what we need. We must recognize our guilt before we can ever be saved. And so Jesus says, I'm going to send witnesses into the world to testify to the guilt of the world. They're going to know they're guilty. Why? Because of the witnesses I use. And what we see in John 15, 26 through 16, 3 is Jesus uses a lot of legal jargon to explain what he's going to do. When he talks about witnesses and when he talks about testimony, he's talking about it in, in a court setting. And once you think about what happens in a court setting, why is it that people get convicted? How do we know that they're guilty? Well, it's because of witnesses. Because witnesses are called out. And because of their testimony, people stand condemned. You've seen this happen many times if you've paid attention to any sort of courtroom drama in your life. If you've read the newspaper, you've read stories about people who were condemned of their guilt because of a witness. Let me share one story with you. This guy's name is George Kelly. Um, he lived in the early 1900s, and you, you might not know him if I don't tell you his nickname. His nickname was Machine Gun Kelly. And, and Machine Gun Kelly um, was a bootlegger. 
That was sort of his claim to fame during sort of the Prohibition era. Um, And he actually got put in prison for bootlegging. And when he got out, at first he was trying to walk the the straight and narrow, but then he met a woman named Catherine Thorne, who was a professional criminal. She wasn't just a bootlegger. He married her and, and she introduced him to the world of high crime. And she explained to him there was a lot of money to be made outside of just bootlegging. She's the one who bought him his first machine gun and, and sort of demanded that he learn how to shoot that thing and carry it around with him. She's also the one who convinced him, here's what we're going to do to make a lot of money. We're going to kidnap somebody who's really rich and then demand a ransom. And so they kidnapped this man right here, Charles Urschel. They kidnapped him, they blindfolded him, and, and then they brought him to Catherine Thorne's parents' farm in Paradise, Texas and held him captive there, demanding a $200,000 ransom. Now, you might think, you know, $200,000 isn't that much. In today's money, would be about $4 million. Now, Charles Urschel family paid his ransom, set him free. But here's what Machine Gun Kelly and Catherine Thorne didn't realize. Charles Urschel had an impeccable memory. And while they were holding him captive, he was memorizing everything that happened, keeping track of everything. He numbered every single step he took. He paid attention especially to all of the sounds that he heard. And and when he was set free, he went to the police and he said, okay, here's what happened. And he started to share his testimony. He talked about different animals that he heard. And they were able to place him on a farm that had a certain number of animals, certain types of animals. He also told them the time of day that he would hear airplanes flying overhead. Now, in in the 1930s, when this took place, there wasn't a lot of places that had airplanes flying overhead. And because he paid attention to how bright the light was coming through his blindfold, he knew what time of day it was. And they were able to pinpoint the location to Catherine Thorne's parents' farm. Now, you might think, well, wait a second, that's not enough to convict anybody. Like, you go in, well, I heard cows and chickens and airplanes. You're convicted. Doesn't work that way. Your testimony has to be a little greater than that. Well, here's the genius uh, of this witness right here. Charles Urschel, while he was held captive, anytime he had a chance, he made sure he touched things. Everywhere he went, he put his hands on everything. And um, his captors didn't think of putting gloves on him. And so he left his fingerprints all over that farmhouse. And so he told them that. He's like, I made sure I touched everything. And so they went in, they dusted for fingerprints, and they found his fingerprints. A little bit different. It's not the perpetrator's fingerprints. It's the guy who was kidnapped. And they were able to condemn Machine Gun Kelly and his wife, Catherine Thorne, to life in prison. Why? Because of his testimony. His testimony revealed their guilt. Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, verses 26 through 16, 3, that our testimony is going to continue to reveal the guilt of the world. And understand this, the way that we reveal the guilt of the world is the same way Jesus did. By manifesting the life of Christ and testifying to it. See, what Jesus did is he simply lived. His words, they could not refuse. His works, they could not deny. And because of that, they stood condemned because their response was what? Hatred. So they stood guilty because of their response to the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this today. What we do is we don't need to go around sort of wagging our finger at the world and telling them that they're naughty and they're evil. All we need to do is testify to the reality of Jesus Christ. Their response to that is what condemns them 
or exonerates them. And so we continue the testimony that Jesus Christ began. We pick up our text in John 15, verse 26. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Verse 3 echoes where Jesus started in John chapter 15. They're going to hate you. Why? Because they hated me. And why do they hate Jesus? Because they hated his Father. They're going to do these things to you now after I leave. Why? Because they don't know the Father. They're going to be revealed for what they are. They are those who are separated from God. And the only bridge back to, Jesus Christ, to God is Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection is the means to enter back into right relationship with God. And the world is convicted of that relationship. Why? Because of the response to us as we continue the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Christ's testimony continues after his departure. The work he began doesn't end when he ascends to the Father. It continues. And what I'm going to show you in this passage today is it continues in three ways. There's three ways this work that Christ began continues after his departure. First way it continues is through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 26 right there, John 15, 26. Jesus says what he began with his words and his works is going to continue to be testified to by who? By the counselor. By the counselor. When the counselor comes, the one I will send from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So this is what I want you guys to picture. What Jesus is saying, imagine this as a courtroom. The first witness called out is who? The Holy Spirit. And he comes out to testify. What is it that he testifies? He's testifying about Jesus. What does the Holy Spirit testify about Jesus? The reality of his person. He did in fact come in the flesh. He is God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. This is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is to point to the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit does. That's the, what the Spirit is doing in the world. That's what the Spirit is reminding us as believers of. He's testifying to the reality of who Jesus is. Now, now I want you to notice this. When John introduces the Holy Spirit here, he calls him the counselor. The counselor. Now different translations will, will translate this word different ways. This is parakletos. Parakletos. And you guys have heard it, the paraclete. Parakletos. This is a compound word. It's made up of two different words. Para. You guys have heard para and parallel. It's alongside. And kletos, the second part of this word, is to call. Literally, it's to call alongside. Now, that doesn't really give us that really broad there. Usually, the word paraclete is used in a courtroom setting. It's used in a sense, it's somebody that you call alongside to advocate, to defend, Somebody you call alongside as a witness. Now, there's two types of people in the courtroom who do that. There, if, you're, if you're on trial, 
One person who does that is the lawyer sitting next to you. He's your advocate. He's there to defend you. He's going to try to do everything he can to prove your case. But one of the ways he does that is he calls witnesses. He calls witnesses to the stand and they testify. What I want you to notice here is the counselor, the advocate, he's both advocating for us and he's witnessing. And what is he witnessing to? He's witnessing to the reality of Jesus Christ. Look at the word for testify right there. You see that word testify? It says, he will testify about me. The Greek word right there for testify is martyreo. Martyreo. And you guys might hear the word martyr in there. You guys hear the word martyr? Well, in this day and age, the word martyreo, it literally means to testify, to bear witness, to witness specifically in a court setting, to share, this is what I saw. This is what happened. Now the word martyreo came to mean dying for your conviction. And the reason that happened is because that's what happened with the witnesses to Jesus Christ. Those who witnessed his life, 10 of the apostles died a martyr's death. You understand that? Why? Because they witnessed it and they could not deny what they had seen with their eyes and what they'd heard with their ears. Now the spirit is the first one who witnesses this. The, first, the spirit is the first one who testifies. So what I want you to get about the spirit's role here in this courtroom drama is he's both our advocate, but he's also the witness. He's standing next to us, but he's also on the stand testifying to what? The reality of Jesus Christ. Do you know every single time you share the gospel with somebody, the spirit is the one who reveals to them the truth of the message you're sharing. The spirit is the one who reveals the truth. Do you believe that he can do that? The spirit is the one who opens eyes. He is the witness. He's both the defense attorney and he's the witness on the stand. Now, a couple other things I want you to notice here. One, this is a special verse. There's a couple verses in scripture that do this, but this one verse right here, we see the entire Trinity. Look at the verse right there. Do you see the entire Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all here present in this verse, and it's explaining their relationship with each other in the verse. What, what does it say about the Son? Jesus says, I'm going to go. I'm going to be glorified. What's he going to do? He's going to send the counselor. Jesus is going to be the one to send the counselor. Now, it's interesting about that. This is John 15, 26. If you turn back exactly one chapter to 14, 26, Jesus says when he's glorified, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit. So which one is it? Is it Jesus? Is it the Son who's sending the Spirit? Or is it the Father who's sending the Spirit? Yes. You see, sometimes we, we try to dissect the Trinity because we don't understand that the Father and the Son are one. The Father and the Son are one. They're distinct persons. They're one God. Now, the second thing that we see here is that the Holy Spirit, it says, is proceeding from the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Father. That's a, this is very controversial. You might not realize it. This phrase right here is what split the Eastern and Western church. You know that? This is why we have Eastern Orthodox and Catholic. This is where they divided. John 15, 26. They decided we see this differently. The Eastern church said, look, it says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And the Western church says, well, here it says he proceeds from the Father. But in John 20, Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, 
receive the Holy Spirit. This word for proceeds, it means to, to breathe out, to, to spirate, to breathe out. And so the Western church says the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's what they split over. Sort of silly. But here's what I want you to get. Once again, they're trying to dissect the Trinity too clearly. The Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. That's, that's what we believe. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that he proceeds forth? What we say this, we say the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding forth from the Father and the Son. It's not suddenly that he began to proceed forth. This is the eternal relationship. Just like we say, the Son of God is eternally begotten of the Father. He wasn't begotten at a point in time. He's eternally begotten. The Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding forth from the Father and the Son. Why is that important? Well, here's why it's important. John 14, 23. Jesus says in John 14, 23, the one who loves me and keeps my word, I will come to him and I, my, my father and I will make our home with him. The Holy Spirit proceeding forth is the means by which the father and the son make their home with us. It's how we're welcomed into the family of God. We're called children of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit proceeding forth, we partake of that spirit. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter seven? Come to me, all you who are thirsty. And what, what happens? He's going to give us drink. In John four, he calls it living water with the woman at the well. And what does he say? Out of your person is going to issue rivers of living water. That Holy Spirit that proceeds forth now proceeds forth. It's flowing through us into this world, eternally proceeding forth. This is how the Holy Spirit does his work of testifying. He's placed within the believer and he flows forth from the believer, testifying to the world, what? The reality of the person of Jesus Christ, eternally proceeding forth from the Father and the Son. There's one last thing I want to point out to you about this verse right here. First, John calls the Holy Spirit the counselor, the perkletos. The second thing he calls the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Do you see that? And when John talks about the Holy Spirit, he uses this name several times in his gospel and in his epistle. And I want you to understand why he uses the name spirit of truth. It's tied up with the Holy Spirit's task of testifying to the truth. He explains it more thoroughly in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. So look at 1 John 5, 6. In 1 John 5, 6, John says this, Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit is the one who testifies. Why? Because the Spirit is truth. This is his identity. This is who he is. He is the Spirit of truth. And so he is constantly proclaiming and revealing truth. Truth to the world. Now, specifically, he's testifying to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what do we know about the person of Jesus Christ? He was God, very God, and he was fully man. Fully God, fully man. 1 John was written at a time where there was a heresy rising that was contesting that. There was a Gnostic heresy that was beginning to take root and John was specifically attacking that heresy in 1 John. And the, the heresy taught that Jesus was not fully God and fully man, but rather he became God and then God left Jesus, the man, behind before Jesus died on the cross. Because it taught this, it taught that flesh was evil and spirit was good. 
And, and it couldn't see Jesus as the perfect son of God bearing our sins on himself, perfect and having sin on him. And say, well, how can that happen? No, the, the God must have left Jesus. They actually said that Jesus, the man, became God, became the Messiah at his baptism. And then the night he's betrayed, God left him. That's not what happened. And what John is doing is he's answering that question right here. He's explaining that's not true. How? Because he talks about two events, the water and the blood. Now there's a little bit of debate about this, but most people agree. This is talking about the two events that mark the beginning and the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in both of them, they testify to the reality of his humanity and his deity. The water. What's the water? I believe, and most commentators agree, the water is talking about when he was baptized by John the Baptist. You remember what happens when he's baptized by John the Baptist? Well, first of all, John the Baptist recognizes him. And John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy, you know, to tie your sandal and I'm going to baptize you. And Jesus said, it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And when John the Baptist baptizes him, what happens? Heavens open, spirit descends, father speaks. You see the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit all in one place. You see the, the spirit in bodily form as a dove. So you can actually witness it. You can see it physically descending upon Jesus Christ. And what's the father say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father testifies. The spirit testifies to what? To who Jesus is. Uh, fully man. John can dunk him in water. And fully God. God has just spoken from heaven. This is the testimony of he came by water. Now the, the Gnostics were saying, yeah, that's the moment he became God right there. And Jesus says, no, he came by, John says, he came by blood and the spirit testifies to this. What does it mean he came by blood? He's talking about his death. He's talking about in his death, as he was shedding his blood, as he's dying on the cross. Do you remember what Jesus said about that event? He says, when you lift up the son of man, by this, you will know that I am he. You guys remember what ha happened when Jesus died? Two people got saved just witnessing that event. Two people. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. Remember the two people who got saved at Jesus' death? The thief? He's for sure saved. How do I know? He's with Jesus in paradise. And the centurion standing right there witnessing, surely this man was a son of God. He got it. He saw it. Why? Because the deity and the humanity of Christ came together in that moment and were perfectly put on display. And the witnesses saw it. They realized it. And what does the Holy Spirit today do today? He backs that up. So that when you read those eyewitness accounts of the baptism and the death of Jesus Christ, the Spirit convicts you of the truth of that. He reminds you of the reality of it. This is God. This is who we worship. This is who we are following. He's testifying to this reality. Now, how is it that the Holy Spirit does this work of testifying? What Jesus is going to do, he's told the disciples, the Spirit is going to testify. And in chapter 16, he's going to explain how. And how the Spirit testifies is twofold. He explains two different ways the Spirit testifies in chapter 16. And I'm going to focus on this next week, but I'm going to mention it this week so you can sort of know where we're going. and Maybe even read it and think about it a little bit yourself. So chapter 16, verse 8, the Spirit is going to testify. How is he going to do that? It says this, 16, 8, when he comes, it's still talking about the Holy Spirit here. He will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Who's he testifying to right here? The world. 
The Holy Spirit's ministry, as he's testifying, is a worldwide ministry. The next verse, verse 9, talks about he convicts of sin to those who don't believe in him. So the Holy Spirit is convicting unbelievers. This is talking about the world. The Holy Spirit has a ministry in the world. And, and what an assurance this gives us as we proclaim the gospel testimony that the Holy Spirit is going before us. The Holy Spirit is the one who prepares the soil of the heart to receive with meekness the implanted word. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world. But his ministry is twofold. Look five verses later at verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. Now right here, I want you to notice verse 13, Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is going to testify to who? The disciples. This is a specific, unique relationship between the Holy Spirit and the disciples. He's testifying to them. Now, now that's sort of surprising if you think about it because wait, they were there. They're eyewitnesses. They saw all of these things. What you need to understand is that their witness was supernaturally inspired. Their witness was supernaturally inspired. And one of the interesting things when I was looking up um, different cases to try to come up with an illustration. I read a lot of court cases this last week trying to come up with a good illustration. Sometimes it's really hard to find a good one. And, and what I found oftentimes was eyewitness testimony was thrown out. Do you know that? And, and it's because when we see something and it's been a couple hours, we have trouble recalling. Like if you see somebody run through a room and you try to pick them out of a police lineup, that can be sort of difficult. Or sort of events, if somebody asks you questions, they ask leading questions, it can sort of mess up your recall. How can we trust the testimony of the disciples? John 16, 13. The Spirit supernaturally enabled them to recall perfectly the events surrounding the life and times of Jesus Christ. This is why we can trust it. Not because of the men, but because of the Holy Spirit who was testifying to them, reminding them, guys, remember, this is how it happened. Guys, remember, this is what he, we, what he said. So when you read the words of Christ, you're reading the words of Christ. The Spirit is testifying, reminding them of this. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Testifying to the reality of the risen Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ's testimony continues after his departure. It continues in three ways. First way that it continues is through the continuing testimony of the Holy Spirit who's eternally proceeding forth from the Father. The second way it continues, look at verse 27, it continues through the disciples. This is the, the second witness that Jesus calls to the stand. First one, Holy Spirit. Next one, disciples. They're going to witness. They're going to testify in this courtroom that I am who I said I am. I am the son of God. I am fully God. I am fully man. Look at the passage. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. First thing I want you to notice is the word also. Greek word kai right there. This is in addition to, this is joining forces with the Holy Spirit. The disciples are testifying along with the Holy Spirit. That's what makes their testimony powerful. That's what makes our testimony powerful today. It's because you're never alone when you testify. You're testifying 
also along with right next to the Holy Spirit. And he's the one who reveals the truth of what you're saying. He's the one who gives eyes to see, ears to hear, mind to understand. The supernatural enablement of the Holy Spirit is what we can be confident in as we continue the disciples' testimony. As we share their testimony from Scripture, we can be confident we're doing it alongside the Holy Spirit. You also will testify. And I want you to understand this. In this courtroom, these witnesses do not contradict each other. These witnesses, their testimony resonates one with the other. That's why Holy Scripture is called the sword of the Spirit. Because the Spirit uses the words the disciples wrote to convict those who will hear. So what? So they can have faith. Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the Word of God. These testimonies do not contradict so it's so important to understand. We, we have four different gospel accounts. And each of them is unique. Each of them is different. And many, many people will look at those gospel accounts and say, look, there's these contradictions. No, there aren't. There's different perspectives. They're seeing the same thing from a different perspective. As a matter of fact, if we had four gospel accounts and they were identical, we'd have to throw them out. Do you understand that? That's how eyewitness testimony works. If you have two eyewitnesses and the first one comes in and they tell you the same story using the same words as the next person, they were coached. They were fed a line and they're sharing that to you. The unique quality of the gospels adds to their veracity, reveals to us their truth. The witness of the disciples does not contradict, but rather resonates with the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And why is it that Jesus says specifically, he's talking here about the disciples. Why is it that they specifically are going to testify? Because they've been with him from the beginning. Now, I want you to understand that John, when he uses the word beginning, he uses it in a couple different ways. Sometimes 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, he talks about in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He's talking about the beginning before anything existed. But other times, when he talks about the beginning, he's talking about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And what he's saying right here is not that the disciples were there from the beginning of creation or even from Jesus' birth. They were there from the beginning of his earthly ministry. Now, now what's interesting is when you read through John's account, he adds things in that none of the synoptic gospels, none of the other three gospels have. And one of those is he lets us know two of the disciples who followed Jesus Christ were disciples of John the Baptist first. Do you know that? And the day after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, hey, there he is. There's the guy I told you about. And these two guys went and started following Jesus. Do you know who they were? Andrew and John. Now, John, I'm reading into the text. In the gospel of John, it says Andrew and another disciple. But here's the thing. In the gospel of John, if a disciple's not named, it's John. John doesn't like to use his own name until the end when he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved but he doesn't do that till the end of his gospel. It's interesting how he talks about himself. So John and Andrew are John the Baptist's disciple. I want you to understand what that means. That means they're witnesses of the water that we just talked about. It's very likely that they were there when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. They heard the father speak. They saw the spirit descend. This is why Andrew goes and gets Peter 
right? This is, this is why they go and they testify immediately. Why? Because immediately they have something to testify to. They've been doing this from the very beginning, sharing the truth of the testimony of Jesus Christ because of what they have witnessed. They've been with Jesus from the beginning. John takes this role as a witness very seriously. You'll notice throughout his gospel, throughout his epistles, and even in the apocalypse, he talks about himself as a faithful witness. He sees that he has a responsibility to recount to everyone in the world who will read scripture the events surrounding the person and work of Jesus Christ. I I love how he describes this in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. Listen, Listen to his description of what he's doing as he writes scripture. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Do you see what he did just right there? What's he talking about? He's saying all of our senses experienced Jesus Christ. We saw, we heard, we felt. I I felt his chest on my head as I leaned against it. I, I, I felt his hands. I saw him eat. He touched him. It's a physical experience. My eyes saw, my ears heard. I've recounted the things I've saw. I've recounted the things that I heard. My testimony is a physical testimony. I'm testifying to the physical reality of the person of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? Verse two. That life was revealed and we have seen it and testified and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. They saw the eternal one. They saw the one who had no beginning and has no end walking around on the world in human flesh. It was revealed to them. Jesus Christ was revealed to them. The eternal life that they declare was revealed to them. Verse three, he says this. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. He says, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm telling you what I've seen. I'm telling you what I've heard so you can have fellowship. The means to us entering into the family of God is the testimony of the disciples who were with him from the beginning. We are able to enter into union with Christ through faith that's based on hearing the words about Christ. We've heard those words. We know the reality. Do do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? Because the gospel testimony is a testimony that's meant to be seen. It's a testimony that's meant to be heard. You see, what we desire when we share the gospel is a supernatural conversion based on historical evidence. You understand that? Wait a second. Which one is it? Is it supernatural or is it historical? Is it based on evidence that you can talk about to the human mind or is it based on supernatural reality that you have to be transformed to comprehend? Yes. You need eyes to see. You need ears to hear, but it's based on real physical evidence. Jesus was fully God, fully man, lived a human life, walked upon this earth. There's historical evidence and it requires supernatural conversion. This is what we pray for. This is what we hope for. And John took his role as a witness seriously. 
In John chapter 19, John, it seems to be one of the only disciples who actually witnessed Jesus' death. None of the other ones talk about that moment. Seems like it was John and the women who were there to witness Jesus' final moments. You remember, Jesus gives John directions for taking care of his mother, Mary. And then John tells us that he witnessed the spear plunged into Jesus' side. And what did he see come out? He saw blood and water. Why? Because Jesus' heart had stopped beating. And what happens when your heart stops beating, your blood separates. The clear liquid plasma from the red blood. What, why is it important that came out? Because Jesus had died. He didn't swoon on the cross. He didn't pass out and then sort of come to later on in the tomb. He was fully dead. And when John witnessed that, he wants us to understand Jesus died. This is reality. So John 19, right after telling us he saw the blood and water come out, he says this, he who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth. John is saying, I was there. I saw it. This is what happened. Why? Because he was with Jesus from the beginning and he's testifying. And the Holy Spirit is supernaturally enabling him to do that. He closes his gospel by saying this, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. You know, oftentimes when you read the gospel accounts, I, I hope that you're using your imagination Okay, because what it's doing, it's describing something that's meant to be seen. We're supposed to be picturing. This is why it's using visual descriptions. We're supposed to use our imagination. And as you use your imagination, it, like, it falls short, right? There's times where you're like, oh, what would it have looked like? What would it have been like? What would it have been like to experience that? What would that bread have tasted like to be there with a 5,000 man? It would have been so awesome to experience that. You know what's better than experiencing that? Experiencing this right here. Do you know why? Because if you're sitting there in the crowd of 5,000, you don't get to hear the intimate conversation. And even if you do hear it, you know what? Five minutes later, if you're like me, you're not going to remember all the words. All of those people, those disciples who witnessed, who saw, they wrote down this account so we could be in the intimate inner circle. And not only do we have the account of those who are in the intimate inner circle, but we have the commentary. We have the teachings of Jesus. He'd tell the parable, but then he explained to his disciples what it meant. This is better. And then the disciples, after the Holy Spirit came, they're writing scripture and they says, now they understand. Now they understand. And they explain to us what's going on. This is better. This eyewitness account that we have, that Jesus told the disciples, you're going to testify. This is better. But you have to believe it's true. And to believe it's true, you need eyes to see, ears to hear. Supernatural conversion based on, on historical evidence. We do not follow cunningly devised fables. Remember, Peter says that, 2 Peter 1.16. We don't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses. We're just telling you guys what we saw. Later in the same passage, he talks about verse 19. He says, we have the prophetic word confirmed, made sure, and you do well to pay attention to it. Like a light shining in a dark place until the morning star dawns in your heart. 
Hebrews 1 talks about infallible proofs. We have many infallible proofs. You cannot find an error in scripture. It's infallible. Amen. He's given us this. We need to have eyes to see, ears to hear. Christ's testimony continues after his departure. How does it continue? It continues first through his Holy Spirit. Secondly, the testimony continues with the disciples, those who were with him from the beginning. And then what we see in John 16 and verse 2 is it's going to continue through the martyrs. Look at the next chapter here. Jesus explains the Holy Spirit is going to testify and you're going to testify. And here's one of the primary ways you're going to testify. You're going to die. You're going to be killed for my name's sake. And it's going to testify to the world the reality of what you have seen and heard. Your willingness to die for your eyewitness testimony validates it. Look at the passage, John 16. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Jesus reveals here to the disciples the primary way in which they will testify. They will testify as martyrs. And this is why martyreo came to mean dying for your belief. This is why the word martyr today means you die for what you believe. Why? Because that's what happened. Because 10 of the 12 did in fact die for what they were eyewitnesses to. I want you to understand this. Those 10 martyrs, their martyrdom was qualitatively different than any other martyr. Think about this for a second. There's many martyrs. You can read through Fox's book of martyrs and you can read all of these accounts. But I want you to understand the 10 apostles who died as eyewitnesses, their martyrdom is qualitatively different than any other martyr. Why? Because they were dying for something that they had witnessed with their own eyes. See, it's, it's one thing to be told something by somebody else and then believe what they told you and die for it. But it's quite another thing to have seen it and say, I can't deny this. I saw it. Think about this. If it's all a hoax, if they made it all up and their life is on the line and they're just trying to sell a hoax, why go on with it? It doesn't make any sense. The fact that they were willing to die for what they witnessed with their eyes, handled with their hands, heard with their ears, demonstrates the veracity of it, demonstrates the truth of that eyewitness testimony. They died for it. Why? Because they'd witnessed it. They were there. They could do nothing else. They could not deny what their eyes had seen. They could not deny what their ears had heard. And so from the very beginning, the church has grown through the testimony of its martyrs. In the second century, Tertullian is the one who said, the blood of the saints is the seeds of the church. The more that the world stands against and persecutes believers, what happens? It grows. You cannot stop this message. You only add fuel to the fire when you murder those who testify to the truth because you demonstrate that they hold true to their conviction. You demonstrate that they know what they have said 
is true. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus was preparing his disciples for martyrdom. Do you realize that? He told them, you're going to be dragged in front of judges. You're going to be dragged in front of kings. And do you remember what he told them to be prepared for that? Nothing. Don't do anything to be prepared for that. Matthew 10, Jesus is speaking, verse 18. He says, you will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak for you will be given what to say at that hour because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father is speaking through you. Do you hear that? Jesus says, this is going to happen. Why? So you can bear witness. You see that word bear witness right there? Martyreo. Martyr. You're going to testify to kings, judges, governors. How? You're going to stand before them. And here's what happens. In that moment, don't worry about what you're going to say because the spirit of your father is going to speak through you. Don't try to figure it all out. Don't write out a speech on three by five cards. As you're sitting in that cell, be confident that God has brought you to this moment to combine his two witnesses into one. I want you to think about this for a second. Verse 27, you're going to testify because you've been with me from the beginning. Verse 26, the spirit is going to testify. And what does he say right here? You're going to testify with your works and the spirit is going to give you the words to say. The spirit of my father is going to speak through you. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Burt Maxwell shared with me that he went and saw this movie, God's Not Dead, uh, We the People. I don't know if you guys got to see it. Um, it's on Pure Flix. If you guys have the, the Pure Flix, you can check it out. Um, but I went, I went and watched it and it's actually based on Matthew chapter 10. It's pretty cool. He goes into this verse um, because the, the, the premise of the story is that there's this man who's going before this Senate committee to try to defend this homeschool co-op that's being shut down by the government. They're trying to force them to put their kids back into public schools and they want to homeschool their kids. And so he's standing before the Senate committee and they're trying to argue and they, they, he has all these three by five cars. He has all these things written down and it's just not working. It's just not going well, right? And I'm going to spoil it for you guys. So if you want to watch it, plug your ears. But he realizes at the end that he's not depending upon the Holy Spirit. And this verse comes into his head. And, and his time to share is actually over. But he walks back in. And the, the senator who's supposed to sort of give the final closing argument concedes the floor to him. And he stands and he speaks. And his words cannot be resisted. The spirit of wisdom upon him allows him to testify to the truth. And it's just Hollywood's way of presenting something that's been throughout scripture. Jesus describes it this way in Luke chapter 21. He says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Here's what I want you to notice here. Here's how it's a little bit different. There's a couple things Jesus adds here. He says, you're going to be given, look at verse 13. You will be given an opportunity to witness. You're going to be given an opportunity to witness. You need to see standing before 
people. And maybe it's not kings. Maybe, maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. I don't know who it is that God's calling you to stand before, but you need to see it as an opportunity to what? To witness, to martyr. Do you get that? I want you to understand this. Oftentimes, the reason we don't witness, the reason we don't martyr is because we're not ready to die. And the reason we're not ready to die is because we're not dead yet. That's a problem. That's a problem. If you follow Jesus Christ, you died. I have been crucified with Christ. That's what happened. You should be ready to die because you're dead already. There should be no fear of man. And so I'm telling you this, not to mock you or condemn you, but to encourage you. This is the reality of who you are. You are somebody who's already died. So in that moment, when the fear comes up, and I know exactly what it feels like, because I experience it every time, and you're thinking, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to do to me? How are they going to reject me? Remember, I'm dead. I'm dead. They can't do anything. I'm already dead. They can't touch me. I'm already dead. They can't kill me. I'm already dead. That's who I am. That's my identity. When you speak out of that identity, nobody's going to hold your witness back. Nobody's going to be able to prevent you from testifying to the reality of who you are. You are a martyr. You are a witness. Listen to how Paul describes Stephen in Acts 22.20. He's sharing his own testimony. You remember, he was the one who was there giving approval as Stephen was martyred. And he says this, And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. Some of your translations, that word witness right there, martyreo, some of your translations will translate it martyr. Because that's what it means. That's what it means to testify. It means you go willingly to death for the message that you will not recant. You will not let go of. And I want you to remember the reason they stoned Stephen. Do you remember the reason they stoned Stephen? Because he preached a sermon. And it absolutely cut them to the heart. He revealed through their own history through their own story. He traced the history of the children of Israel and he showed them based on their scripture that they stood condemned. And it says no one was able to resist him because of the wisdom with which he spoke. So the only thing you can do when you cannot resist the wisdom of the one who's testifying in front of you is silence them through murder. And so what did they do? They killed him. They killed him. Do you remember last week we saw the words of Christ over and over again? People think they're putting Jesus in checkmate. And what happens? No. They have no response. They have no answer. And what do we see? Stephen doing the same thing. And what do we see? Paul doing the same thing. And what do we see? Peter doing the same thing. The story of Acts is that the story continues. It's the work and ministry of Jesus Christ continues after he is glorified. Through his spirit. Through his disciples. His works continue. Why is it that the world rejects our message? Because they don't know the Father. John 16, 3. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Now here's the tragedy. The tragedy is that they will do these things oftentimes in the name of God. You see verse 2 right there? The one who kills you thinks he's serving God. Now there's countless stories of people who did that. 
people who burned heretics in whose name? In the name of God. First one's Paul. Paul is killing people in the name of God. He believes he's serving God with his zeal. And it continues throughout the history of the church. The church has constantly been persecuted by people who purport to be the church. Let me give you one example. This is Thomas More. Thomas More lived from 1478 to 1535. He was declared the Lord Chancellor in England in 1529. And Thomas More was, he was zealous for his faith. Now, if you understand your history, then you know there's a really important event that happened in 1517. The guy named Martin Luther, remember him? right? Nails his 95 theses, sets in motion the Protestant Reformation. And what happens? It spreads all throughout Europe, sort of a perfect storm with the Gutenberg press. And so this message is getting out. All of a sudden we have the ability to have mass media because we have a press. And so they can send this out. And, and so the Protestant Reformation just spreads all over Europe. This man would not allow it to spread to England. He made sure the fire of the Protestant Reformation did not reach England's shores. And he did it primarily by declaring all-out war against one man, William Tyndale. William Tyndale believed God's word should be written in the language of the common man. But, but the church, the Catholic church at that point, what they taught is it can only be in Latin, Jerome's translation is the only translation we can accept because if you translate it, you might make an error and then you'll be cursed. If you add to God's word or you take away from God's word or you use the wrong word, you could be cursed. And so you're a heretic if you translate God's word or if you read God's word. Even if you had just an English translation of the Lord's prayer, you could be executed. Do you understand that? That's how intense this guy was. So William Tyndall actually had to flee England and, and he had to, he spent his time translating scripture into English and then smuggling it into the country. And so what Thomas More would do is he'd find the people who got converted through William Tyndale's writings and he would burn them at the stake. Uh, one, one man who he did that to was John Tuxby. John Tuxby. Now John Tuxby was converted through reading a story that William Tyndale wrote. And then he got a hold of scripture and started reading it. And when Thomas More had him burned at the stake, this is what he said about John Tewksby. He said, he had never burned a wretch more worthy of burning. Why? Because he read God's word in English and he held to justification by faith alone. And so Thomas More burned him and he said he was worthy of burning because he was going against God. Another man, Thomas More caught the man who was actually smuggling William Tyndale's works into England. His, his name was Richard Bayfield. And when Thomas More had him burned, he said he was well and worthily burned. Fox, John Fox wrote Fox's book of martyrs. He wrote this about Thomas More. He said he was blinded in the zeal of popery to all humane considerations in the treatment of Lutherans. Okay. Popery. That's worship of the Pope. You understand that? It's not talking about a fragrant thing. It's <laughs> he's blinded by his hatred. Now, but here's what I want you to get. He genuinely believed he was serving God. And here's how I know. 
Ironically, Thomas More was executed as a heretic in England by King Henry VIII. You guys remember Henry VIII? Do you remember what he did? Well, Henry VIII, he was actually labeled by the Pope as a defender of the Catholic faith because of Thomas More's work. Because he wouldn't let the Protestant Reformation reach the shores of England. And Henry VIII backed him up on that until it was inconvenient for him. Because he had this wife, Catherine of Aragon. You remember her? He didn't like her. He wanted to divorce her. And the Pope said, no, divorce is illegal. You cannot get divorced. And he said, fine, I'm going to start my own church. And so he started his own church, the Church of England. And he just he declared himself the supreme head of the Church of England. Thomas More would have none of it. No. He was so zealous, he refused to pledge his allegiance to King Henry as the head of the church. He said, the church has one head. He said, I will serve you as my king, but I will not serve you as the head of the church. Now, here's the one little problem. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. It wasn't the Pope. But here's what I want you to get. He was so certain in his conviction that he was executed one year before his nemesis, William Tyndale. William Tyndale was strangled and burned in the stake one year later in 1536. He believed what he was doing. He did it zealously in the name of God. And what happened in England after the Church of England sort of came into power is after that, different monarchs would rise up, different, different ruling authorities would rise up and either they'd be Catholic or they'd be Protestant. What would they do? Kill all their enemies. How? In the name of God. Those who murder heretics in the name of God are always wrong. Do you understand that? Amen. Jesus tells us what we do with a heretic. We excommunicate them. We cast them out. We turn them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, for the salvation of their soul. We are not the final authority. We do not damn them to hell. We have no right to do that. We remove them from our midst because of their error in their doctrine, because of their divisiveness to the brethren, but we do not burn them in the name of God. And throughout history, men have done this and they have believed when they're doing it that they are serving God. And here's what I want you to understand. It's not going to change. It's not going to change anytime soon. Those who oppose you, those who persecute you, those who mock you and malign you, are going to continue to do it and they're going to continue to say they're on the side of righteousness as they oppose you. And what I want to challenge you with today is this. Hold fast to the testimony that cannot be resisted. Hold fast to the wisdom that God gives you through the spirit who's been sent into this world to testify to this world so that what? So the world can be convinced as they're given eyes to see, as they're given ears to hear. You have a witness to share. You join in with the disciples in testifying to the truth of Jesus Christ. You know, we read the story of martyrs and I think that sometimes, I know that I at times can think, I would do that. And I feel that in that moment, I'm being more like Peter than I am like William Tyndale. Because remember, Peter, he professes, Lord, you know, I'm ready to die with you unless I have to stand up to a little slave girl. <laughs> but how often do we profess, Lord, I'm willing to die for you, but I don't want to lose my reputation at work or with my neighbors. 
I don't want to be embarrassed if I misspeak. God, I'll die with you, but I won't um, embarrass myself for you. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself if you believe that you're ready to die for Jesus and you are ashamed of the gospel. And the reason we're ashamed of the gospel is because we've forgotten the truth. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm already dead. I can't do anything. And so I want to challenge you today to openly testify. Open up your mouth and testify to this reality. Jesus is Lord. Testify to that reality with your friends, with your family, with your loved ones. Will you openly testify Jesus is Lord? The world will hate you, but some will hear. Some will have eyes to see, ears to hear. And you know what will happen? They'll receive with meekness the implanted word. And that's how the world is changed. And that's how the church is built. And that's our privilege as slaves in the kingdom of heaven.